This podcast is brought to you by the Los Angeles Inner Group of Overeaters Anonymous. Please visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three podcast feeds of over 200 sound files of individual speakers as well as events such as retreats and workshops. You'll also find order forms for ordering CDs of many of these speakers through the San Fernando Valley Inner Group of OA. Finally, we have a donation button where you can contribute to keeping this valuable service continuing for yourself and others. Again, our website is www.oalaig.org. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Chris P. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So this something's happening here and something okay. Whew. All right. Maybe I ought to breathe a little bit. Would you join me please in the uh, third step prayer? God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Oh, goodness gracious. My name is Chris, and I am a compulsive overeater and a vomiter from uh, Costa Mesa, California. And I didn't know you could, I, I really didn't know you could get to Brentwood from Costa Mesa. I didn't, my, my husband told me that you can't get there from here, but fortunately I have young women who travel a little bit more than I do, and they helped get me up here to, tonight, and uh, I'm very grateful to them, and I'm very grateful to this program. Uh, if I don't binge and throw up today, tonight, before midnight, I will have 28 years tomorrow. <laughs> And that is uh, really quite a miracle, isn't it? I mean, I, we mouth those words. I mouth, anyway, I do. I mouth that word, miracle. Um, but sometimes it actually gets inside what a miracle I am. Um, when I got to Overeaters Anonymous in March of 1980, March 5th, actually, of 1980, I was 35 years old. I uh, was binge vomiting all day long, every day. That's all I did except I drank on weekends. I smoked two or three packs of cigarettes every day, Um, three if I was drinking, two otherwise. Uh, And I had been purging since I was 18 years old, and I was never going to tell anybody. I was going to go to my grave with that secret, because that's a pretty hideous secret, isn't it? Uh, Not so much. Not so much. You know, I, I don't care who I tell today. I am so blessed. All glory to God. I'll have 28 years tomorrow. I mean, this is... Anyway, that makes me 63 if anybody's uh, counting. And uh, I never expected to get to be 63, uh, much less to be this cute. Aren't I just about the cutest thing you've ever seen? So you like... How do you like me so far? Am I, am I doing okay? If I told you... If I told you how many... Um, moments of my life in the last six months have gone into this March 15th because John asked me last summer and then something happened and then in the fall and something else happened and then so we finally made it be March 15th and and um, I remember when I hung up from him thinking March 15th how am I going to remember that how am I going to remember March 15th I mean I, I go oh okay how about the next day's your birthday so um 
So I, I, ch I started checking the weather report in Brentwood two weeks ago ahead on the internet, you know, to see what it's going to be in two weeks. And of course, didn't you know it was 80 and 85 and 75 and 72 and 76? And, and then all of a sudden, the end of this week, it was 63, 62, 61. But I bought this outfit, and I was wearing this outfit. <laughs> I don't care it was, if it was below zero. So I brought my, I brought my pea coat, and I did wear it as we crossed the street because it was a little bit cold. But, you know, oh well, bless my heart. Um, I ain't much, but I'm all I think about. You know, can anybody relate to that? So I got here in 1980, and I couldn't stop throwing up. I was born in a in a in a pretty dysfunctional um, situation. Um, I have people in recovery for gen well, no, no, just one generation above me is in recovery. My mother was sober 30, 37 years, uh, the 30th of December. And uh, she's an adorable woman. Isn't she adorable? And uh, she's 83 years old. And she, yesterday she just got her hair cut like mine. And I got to tell you, I wasn't that thrilled because she didn't look much older than me. <laughs> so when we looked in the mirror, I went, oh, I don't know. Maybe we're going to have to, Mama, maybe we're going to have to go back to the pin curls. But anyway, um, so she was only 20 years old when I was born. And, and um, in my house growing up, there was an awful lot of um, emphasis on body size body image and being pretty and making a good impression and, and so I have a master's degree in impression management and um, I'll, you know and so anyway my father talked about focus on body um, my father would say when I'd eat too much he'd say well that's a, or, or I'd ask for another helping because I always wanted another helping since I was a tiny baby I weighed eight pounds when I was born eight and a half pounds I gained a pound a week my first my first like three months or something, my mother was horrified that I was going to weigh 52 pounds by the time I was a year old. Now, why did I need to know that? You know, as I, as I, um, you know, as I, these are stories that I grew up with, but when I say them out loud today, I bless their hearts, you know, bless their hearts. So I would ask my dad for another helping and he'd say, yeah, go ahead and we'll just call Omar the tent maker for your clothes. And uh, so I grew up with this image of being this little fat. I was born a redhead, white eyebrows and eyelashes. Just about everything on me is dyed or plugged or, you know, but that's okay. That's all right. I'm still cute. It doesn't matter. But uh, anyway, so I had these white eyebrows and eyelashes and freckles and long red hair. And the kids at school would say, I'd rather be dead than red on the head. And fatty, fatty two-by-four couldn't get through the bathroom door, so she did it on the floor. And, you know, and, and, but then I'd go home and my mother would tell me that my hair looked like a bright, brand new shiny copper penny and I was the prettiest little thing she ever saw in her life. Guess who I believed? Of course I believed the kids at school. And uh, I remember in 19, I think 1992, I'll, go, I'll be all over the map I'm sure before this night is over, but I think it was in 1992, I was leading a retreat in Albuquerque, New Mexico, an OA retreat. And I had my bottle tan, and I had my little Bermuda shorts, and I had my, you know, little outfit and my blonde hair. And, and uh, these girls said, when I got there, oh, I knew you must be the leader because you look like a California girl. And I thought, I had to be 45 years plus before anybody accused me of being a California girl because, you know, that's certainly not what I thought I looked like. And, uh, and today what I look like, as much time as I put into it, what I look like is far less important than it's ever been in my life. Um, I married, one day at a time, I'll be married 45 years in November to my very best friend, 
and uh, his name is Buddy, and we all love Buddy. Don't we love Buddy? Yeah, and uh, he, he gave us, you know, a lot of, like, advice before we left tonight, and how to drive and how to act and, you know, and all that. And, and uh, he's, just, he's just a darling, darling man, and I don't know what I'd do without him. But before I got to Overeaters Anonymous, uh, I thought I knew ever so much more than he did. And um, I really kind of thought I had settled. I really kind of thought that I had married beneath me. Because don't you know I'm very articulate and uh, awfully smart. And, uh, and then a wise woman said to me, well, if Chris, if you could have done better, why didn't you? Hmm. Now, there's a, there's a question, isn't it? And what I, the answer today I know is that women like myself, added to women like myself, very masculine women like myself who, who get by on performance and, instead of process and who get by on, on uh, what I can teach you and teach him and all that, um, we're, I, we're kind of invested in, in believing we marry beneath us. And, and I think the reason we do that is so that we can feel in control. Anybody else like to feel in control? You know, I want everybody to sit where I want them to sit. I plan a party, and I, I get a, in my mind's eye how it's all going to look, and it never does. And more and more, as I live this program, more and more, it doesn't matter how it looks. That I know it's absolutely perfect. So, um, boy, I didn't realize that I, you know, I did I, as much planning as I've done in how I'm going to look tonight. I didn't do any planning in what I'm going to talk about. So, um, and that may be a good thing, but I don't think that the, it's necessarily true that God only speaks through me as I'm standing right here. I think if I had thought of some things this afternoon or this morning to say that he could have been speaking through me then too. So, mostly I like to not shoot on myself. Mostly I like to not say this is how it should be done um, because I am such a precious girl. And I'm the mama now and I'm the only one that can keep this little baby girl alive. And if I put all those, put all those you know, shits on myself, I'm in really big trouble. I've got, uh, uh, my head is a neighborhood that nobody would want to walk around alone in. I have, it tells me things, my head tells me things that are just so unkind. And, uh, and today, more and more and more, I am able to say, you're a big fat liar. You know, shut up. Get out. You know, shut up. That is not the truth. Um, I got here in 1980, and uh, all I knew how to do was throw up, drink, smoke, control my husband, fantasize about finding a better husband, and um, worry. Any other worriers in the room? No other worriers? Oh, thank you. I just thought for a minute I was completely alone here. Um, you know, and I'd come in and I'd hear people kind of self-righteously say, well, you know, what's the, how's that go about it, pray, why worry, worry, why pray? I don't know. It, it, like, in other words, if, you don't, if you're worried, then you don't have any faith. And I used to think that that was just a little much, but today I kind of I kind of believe that. And, and so the minute I feel a worry coming on, the minute I feel like, um, you know, I can't handle this, which is like maybe ten times a day, I drop to my knees right where I am, and I say, help, because he knows exactly what I want, exactly what I need. I don't necessarily know what I'm praying for but I just can't do this on my own help me I get up in the morning and I get on the computer right away and I have certain um, uh, 
devotionals and things that I read that come across the internet and and um, and I type the third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Self. So that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And then I write everything I'm afraid of and everything I'm angry about. And I'm such a good girl that usually my fear list is longer than my anger list. But sometimes my anger list is really ugly. You ever thought angry at things that are really, really ugly about other people? And I just and I'm just writing them down, and then I see it for what it is when it's in black and white, and I say, "My Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding." I just give it all to him and, and just, you know, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a, a perfectly beautiful, um, articulate, cherishing, encouraging, loving, gossipy, bitchy, ball-busting human being. That's what I am. And God, you know, knows all those parts of me and he loves me so much he can't take his eyes off me. So um, this has been a pretty uh, a pretty miraculous year in our house. Um, a year ago, in it'll be two years ago in May, my husband had quadru- quadruple bypass surgery, and it was unexpected and shocking. And, and why it was shocking or how it was shocking is kind of amazing to me because his dad had a triple bypass at 55, his brother had a triple bypass at 59. And he was 63. Why wouldn't he be right for it? But he had no symptoms whatsoever. So uh, at one point I said to the doctor, because they were looking at some other funny little thing, and I said to the doctor, has he ever told you about his, um, his uh, family history? And the doctor said no. And I explained to him that all the males had been dead before they were 70, with the exception of his father, who died at 70 in his second bypass. And... Um, and the doctor just went, whoa, and, and hooked him up with a cardiologist. So he went in and they said, well, buddy, you've got one blockage, but um, we're going to give you a, an angiogram. We're going to put you in the hospital for an angiogram, just to be sure that, you know, but I think what we're dealing with is one blockage, and we're going to put a stent probably in or a something. Probably that's what we'll do. Well... His was one of those cases where it was a false reading because it looked like it was one blockage and three normal. But what it was really was was three that were 80% blocked and one that was 100% blocked. And so they kept him in the hospital and did the quadruple bypass the next day. And he said, well, when would I have had symptoms? And he said, you wouldn't. You just would have dropped over. And now I was 19 and Buddy was 20 when we got married. And he'll be 65 on uh, two weeks from today or something, or from Thursday. Uh, but he's still 19 to me, still 20 to me, you know. And um, and he still thinks when we go to a party or go to any anything, he'll we'll leave and he'll say, "Well, you were still the prettiest one, prettiest girl in the room." You know, and I know when I got here, I was 35 years old, and I'd hear 65-year-old women say that, and I'd think, poor old soul. You know, she is, she is so deluded, you know. Uh, I thought a lot of things when I got here, because I, I knew more than just about anybody, you know. 
Um, and, oh, and I'd hear women talk about their adult children, and they'd be worrying about their adult children, and I'd think, get a life. Can't, don't these women have better things to do than worry about? Now, all I'm doing is worrying about my 10 and 13-year-old. I can't stop worrying about them. But I know by the time they're 18, I'm going to stop. Or by the time they're 21, and certainly by the time they're 30, I'm not going to be sitting in meetings talking about them. And some of my greatest angst is then over my children, my whole adult life. And some of, as I have, I remember one time I was leading a women's retreat, and it was, it was um, and I admitted before that room, my son, my oldest son was, I say my son as if he's the only one I've got, and that's pretty telling right there. You know, it's like when, you, when you're, you're, you're obsessed with a human, anybody ever been obsessed with a human? And you just say she or he, you're talking to your sponsor or your spouse or something, you say, well, and then he said, you know it's an addiction if you're just referring to her or him as he or she instead of by name, you know, because that's all that's on your mind. And where was I going? So my son um, was going through some struggles, and he was in his mid-20s at the time, and, and he, um, I was just so afraid for him. And so I was so afraid that I stayed in control. And, and he let me, because what, what kid wouldn't let his mother stay in control? He would bring, he'd bring his, pay, cash his paycheck, bring the money over, give it to me. I'd deposit it in his checking account. I'd write the checks for his bills, and he didn't have to worry about anything. I mean, who wouldn't want to stay 12 if they could, you know? And um, so, because I was afraid he wouldn't pay, he wouldn't, you know, do it right. He wouldn't pay his insurance, and then if he didn't pay his insurance, then maybe he'd get arrested for an automobile accident, and then maybe he'd kill himself. Because I mean, that's the kind of things that my head does. And so I stood before. I was just sober and abstinent, and oh, I don't know. 15 years, maybe? Is that possible? Yeah, he was 13. Maybe not quite that long, but anyway, 10 years at least, 10, 12 years at least. And I stood before this group of women, and I'm sobbing, and I've got snot running down my face. And I'm like, I can't believe I got whatever years of recovery and storing in my son's chest, and you guys want me to leave this retreat? And afterwards, a woman wrote me a love note. She said, there's nothing more difficult than letting go of adult children. And we're here with you every step of the way. You know? And that's the kind of compassion I learned in this fellowship. When I call my sponsor and I say, I, I did this and this and this and that, she says, of course you did. Of course you did. You know, you're an addict. You're a compulsive overeater. You're a binge vomiter. I call myself a vomiter for this reason. Boy, I am all over the map, aren't I? Um, I call myself a vomiter. Because of ego. Because when I was about a year in the program, I only went to daytime meetings. It was always day, daylight outside at meetings for me. So when I'd go to a night meeting ever, it would be so terrifying. There'd be lights on overhead and different faces, faces that I didn't recognize. And I just felt like, oh, you know, and they're not going to like me and, well, you know, whatever. And they don't know me. And, you know, I really am. I'm really good. Honest, honest everybody. I really am. And so they started to announce sponsors. And so I'm rehearsing how I'm going to announce myself. And I've been coming here for almost three decades. So there was a woman that used to come to Overeaters Anonymous. She was from New York. And if you know, she used to call herself, um, I won't say her name, but she used to say she was an abstain, she was a abstaining, maintaining, going saning, compulsive overeater from such and such. 
So I'm rehearsing. There's about 50, maybe 100 people in this room, and there's going to be 50 sponsors at least in this circle. And as they're going around the room, I'm rehearsing so that these people will know just who I am. So they'll understand that I get this disease, and I get this recovery, and I'm, you know... So I'm rehearsing, I'm Chris, I'm a compulsive overeater, I'm a abstaining, maintaining, going saning, compulsive overeater, uh, bulimic, alcoholic, codependent, and I'm going through this litany, and then all of a sudden a quiet voice says, Christine, <laughs> you're a vomiter, you always were, you always will be, contingent on your spiritual condition, Right? You have, you know, reprieve today, contingent on your spiritual condition. Thank you. And so, <clears throat> so I just stopped. And when it got to me, I said, my name is Chris, and I'm a compulsive overeater and a vomiter, and I sponsor. And I've never called myself anything else since. And that's just my reminder to me that if you don't know who I am, so what? You know, you don't need to know who I am. I need to know who I am. And I need to know who's in charge, and it isn't me. And um, so anyway, Buddy had this, this surgery, and, um, and so then I decided to t- uh, see if I could help him with his weight because uh, I'm a real good helper. And, um, and we have these kids and grandkids that, you know, I have a life today beyond my wildest dreams. I truly do. My oldest son is 42. He's married. He has two, he, he's the provider, sole provider of his family. His, uh, you remember that guy who couldn't play, pay his insurance? He's now the sole provider for his wife and son and daughter. His wife is a stay-at-home mom. He's, he's a musician. He, he has a fabulous, he, he, he has a, uh, a band that, uh, where he writes all the music that's gospel music for children. It's, hot, uh, it's um, rap music, hip-hop, uh, gospel music for kids. It's fabulous, if I do say so myself. Um, his kids are like, they don't come any better than Sam Parks and Stella. Stella Grace, and she's going to be four on the 14th of March. And, and she sounds like this when she talks. She's got a really deep voice like her grandmother. I go, Stella, I love your braids. And she goes, they're pigtails. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> anyway, so um, where was I? Where was I? So I have this, these, this family, and, I, and then there's my younger son, and he's just amazing. And he has Alexis, the, the, uh, the love of my life, and she's nine years old now, and, and she's named after me, Alexis Christine. And her brother Logan just made his very first base hit today in T-ball. Can we have a hand for Logan? <laughs> and he, he was five on Sunday, and, and, you know, and they all live within two miles of me, and we see him almost every Sunday for dinner. And... and um, and it's just, just an amazing kind of life, truly an amazing kind of life. And, and last February, my husband retired, and he worked for the Edison Company for 30 years, and then they downsized, and, and they made him, um, made him uh, apply for his own job. I don't know if any of you men have ever been in that position, or women have been in that position, where you've been in a position for 10, 20, 30 years, and suddenly you have to qualify for your own job and so he was one of 10 people applying for his job and he didn't get it and he was 50 years old and he had never done anything else and he had worked there since he was 19 years old and so he uh, they gave him a 
severance package. And I thought I was going to die right then and there because that meant, um, you know, I don't know what that meant, but it was change and it was terrifying to me. Well, if anybody had told me in 1990, whatever that was, 1994, what my life would look like today, and I would say to him, I would go into him and I'd say, babe, it's all good. You know, God loves us so much he can't take his eyes off of us. You've always been a wonderful provider. You're the best there is. I, I don't worry about anything. And then I'd go in the other room and go, ah! And I'd call my sponsor, what are we going to do? But I always treated him with the respect that he deserved. Always. Because everything I said was true. So, if I, you know, like I say, if I had known then what my life would look like today, I would, it's far, far exceeded anything I could imagine. And he did go to work someplace else, and he is now completely retired. And, um, I used to hear retired women talk about their husbands staying home, and, and they talk about the horror of it and how they rearranged the cupboards for them, and they <laughs> taught them how to vacuum and, you know, all these things. And, you know, and you just couldn't get them out of your hair and what all that. Well, i got to tell you, for me, it's been nothing like that. It's been absolutely nothing like that. He said to me when he retired, he said, I don't want you to... Um, I don't. I neither expect nor want you to, to entertain me. He said, "I, you know, I don't want you to give up a single thing that you do in your life. My life is rich and full. I go to three meetings a week. I sponsor lots of girls. We go to the. My husband and I go to the movies every Monday afternoon. We go to church together every Sunday, which is a miracle in itself because." For 44 years, 43 years, he said, if he walked into a church, the walls would crumble. He'd come crashing down. And today he goes in and and, uh, honors God just the same way I do. And uh, that is such a miracle. We pray together today. Uh, On our 44th wedding anniversary last November, we were uh, out to dinner. We went to um, Morton's Steakhouse, just the two of us. And... and, um, I haven't even talked about OA, have I? Lordy, lordy. Okay, sorry, tape. I'm, I'm going to try to pick it up here. Um, we're uh, at Morton Steakhouse, and, and I didn't want to just talk about the grandkids and, the, and, you know, how the cat was doing at her advanced age and, you know, that kind of stuff. So when we got there, I said to him, babe, I said, um, we're sitting there, and I said, uh, wow, what were we doing 44 years ago at this moment? We looked at our watches, and he says, well, we weren't married yet. Didn't we get married at 7 o'clock? And I said, yeah. We, set, we went from there to, and then, our, then we went to Palm Springs for our little honeymoon. We didn't know you had to get reservations in November in Palm Springs. We were 19 years old, so we ended up in some seedy little motel somewhere. And, um, and then we talked about our first apartment and our friends then and what they looked like and the partying or not partying we did and, the, and, and having our babies. And, and, and then the partying really began. And, and then what our 30s looked like and our first home. And, and we just went on throughout our lifetime, you know, and just getting more and more and more. And, and we're sitting in a booth. It's a, cir- a half-circle booth like this, but we're side by side, so we're not facing each other, which is unusual. We usually face each other while we're, while we're dining and uh, he said, um, and then you went to OA, and every- I said, and then I- and in 1980 I went to OA, and he said, and everything changed. And when I first came to OA, and I would preach to him about how you know he should be doing things, and how if he did them the way I did them, he'd be as spiritual as I was. And he would say, you're as controlling as you've ever been, you know. And then I, then I say, well, I've got to divorce him because you know he's just such an idiot. 
And uh, my sponsors would say to me, are you married today? And I'd say, yeah, well, then go cook dinner and shut up, you know. And um, so, and he had never said everything's ch- and everything changed. He had never said that before. And, and so we went on through and we talked about our partying years and we talked about, you know, some of the things that, you know, that I'm not, a, I'm not proud of. I, but you know what? I have morals and values galore. And I did my whole entire life, but they were no match for my disease. And my disease wanted me dead, and I was so afraid of being alive. And so if a little cigarette or a little alcohol or a little fantasy or a little cocaine or a little marijuana, if that was going to, you know, relieve it at all, then I was going to do it. I was going to try it. So he's sitting there, and we're almost kind of, we've always gotten almost up to today. And he looked away from me. Like he couldn't look me in the eye as he said it. And he said, I see God in you. And then he looked back over at me and he said, you gave me that. With tears in his eyes. Now if I live to be 95, and I intend to, I absolutely intend to if it's God's will. If I live to be 95, he can never give me a greater gift than that gift. That night. That's as good as it gets right there. And um, so anyway, um, last, last year, about in the middle of last year, he started going to church with us regularly. And, and he says, but I'm never going to do any kind of group things. And I'm never going to, you know. <laughs> so now we're in a book study. <laughs> and we go on Tuesday nights with a bunch of other couples that are most of them about our age. And, and the question, the icebreaker question in this book study this, this week was, um, who do you, let's see, I don't know exactly how it was worded. Who do you know? Not who do you know. Who reminds you most of God? Or who's most like God? And so there was like dead silence in the room, especially my husband and I, because God knows we're scared we're going to say something stupid. And we're not going to be as smart as these other people who have been around longer than we have. So we just, you know, just shut up and stared straight ahead. I'm kind of clinging to him like this. And, but, ten? And so everybody else is, um, n- nobody else is saying anything either. And, um, but I'm thinking to myself, do you know who's, if God is love, then uh, the person who's most like God that I know of is my husband. <laughs> He's provided for me. He's protected me. He's loved me unconditionally. He's loved me when I was just so mouthy. You know, he's he's been he's disciplined our children. He's role modeled what it looks like to be a good provider. I mean, he's those are all such godly qualities. But I'm not going to say that. He made all that of me. First of all, I'd say it and he'd guffaw, and then I'd be embarrassed because he guffawed. You know, do any of the wives get this? I hope I got here. Anyway, um, so the next day we're talking about it. And then finally one man said, well, Billy Graham is the most like God. You know, of all the people you've ever heard of, you've never heard anything bad about him. And, okay, well, it probably is him then. And the next day we're driving down the street and we're talking about it. And this book study is going to end up being one of the better things that ever happened to us because, it's, you know, we're exchanging realities about it and we are, we're being intimate about it. And that's what my God wants for us. And uh, and so he says, you know, he says, I think you people had got, you, you people got it all wrong last night. You people, it's always you people. Like this group group of people here, that's you people. He says, you people had it all wrong last night. And I said, why is that, babe? He said, 
I think they were talking about some, you know, some person out there in the world. They're saying, who do you personally know that has the attributes of God? I'll tell you about one. She's a woman, and then I'll, I guess I'm coming up on closing, and I feel so embarrassed because I feel like I've really not said a whole lot at all about, about work and stats or the, the spiritual principles of these, this program. But know that I live by them. Know that I work the steps every day. I spend, I spend more time on six and seven or I did, I'd say, over the last five years, spent more time on six and seven than any other of the steps. And in my early years in recovery, I kind of swished through the six and seven because that, there's only two paragraphs in the big book. Today, I, have, I, have, I do columns, you know, six and seven step columns, I, you know, on a very regular basis. I'd say in the last year, I've concentrated more on the 11th step than any, than any of the steps. Um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the, it, well, you know, in, the, in closing about, about what I think, um, how the spiritual principles show up and, and how I see them. About 27 years ago, I was walking to a meeting in Orange. I went to a meeting every single day somewhere because that's all I wanted to do is be with people like me so I didn't feel so alone anymore. And so I'd drive 30 miles and 40 miles and 20 miles and 10 miles. And, and then I got smart and, and, and started meetings within three miles of my house, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So that eased it up just a little bit. And I was at this meeting in Oregon. There was a woman ahead of me, and she was about, I'm going to say she was about 20 years older than me. And at the time, I was about 35. So that made her about 55. And that seemed really, really, really old to me at the time. And and uh, I was walking behind her, and she didn't see me there. And she reached down, and she saw a wad of gum, and she got paper out of her purse, and she cleaned up this wad of gum off the, off the ground. And she threw it in the trash. And I remember thinking, she didn't want anybody else to step in it. And so I, I remember I went home, and I told my sponsor, and I said, she says, well, that's about as spiritual as you can get. She said, you know, loving other people. She said, um... Um, you know, one of the most spiritual things you can do is put a new roll of toilet paper on, on the spindle if you've used the last of it, you know. Even if you're in a public restroom, like for the next guy. Because I got here and all I was doing was serving myself. How, what could, what's in it for me? You know, it's all about me acquiring things, um, how thin was I? How pretty was I? I'm 200 pounds at my top weight. And today I'm, I'm maintaining a perfectly lovely age and lifestyle appropriate 63-year-old body by eating in a moderate way. I have t- tomorrow I have 28 years of back-to-back imperfect abstinence. I have always been honest and accountable with another compulsive overeater when I have been uncomfortable about the way I ate. But I've never one time gone back to the lethal eating I was doing when I got here. All glory to God. So, um, gosh, bless my little heart for being all over the moon. But um, anyway, so I saw this woman, and my sponsor said that's what spirituality is. And next month, April 18th, we're going to have a retreat. It's our 24th annual Sweet Surrender Women's Retreat. It's up near Idlewild, and uh, yeah, and it's a really fun thing. And and uh, and we usually have about 60 women there, and it's it's pretty special. And today, I got an email from that same woman. Well, if she's 20 years older than me, you can, you know, kind of guess how old she is. Okay? She's a widow. She lost her husband a few years ago. She's had both her hips replaced. 
and uh, she sent me an email and she said, thanks for the directions and I can't wait to be there. Does anyone need a ride? You know? So, um, yeah, I see, uh, my husband sees God in me. I see God in you guys. And uh, I thank you all very much for listening. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, of course I'm going to make mistakes. So what do, what do I have? I have three minutes for questions. Hi. Denise, hi. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I am absolutely honest and accountable with another compulsive overeater if I'm uncomfortable with my food. I, unlike probably many of you, I eat five times a day. I've eaten five times a day since 1980, and it's worked. Um, that doesn't mean I have five big meals, and it, and it doesn't even meal, mean I have three meals and two snacks. It means I have the food that I'm allotted, that I've worked out with my sponsor, divided five ways is basically what it means. Okay, and it kind of keeps my metabolism going. Because and, and, I was one of those people, I didn't eat breakfast, and I didn't even eat lunch. But I started eating at 4 o'clock and never stopped, you know. So, uh, and my food plan has mutated over the years. I got the Dignity of Choice in 1980, and they had a teen plan, youth plan on it then. And so I followed the youth plan because it had the most food. And, uh, I, and I was eating 55,000 calories a day when I got here. I literally was. I binged and purged 20 or 30 times a day. Loaves and bags and boxes and cartons and jars every day. So I wasn't about to go on some little gray sheet. Forget about it. You know, I knew that, that, that I wasn't going to eat that little amount of food. And, you know, there have been times when I eat pretty, that it looks kind of like gray sheet. But, um, like I say, it's mutated. And Yes? Hi, thank you so much. Okay, well, as I said, I was 200 pounds at my top weight, and I was smaller than I am, considerably smaller than I am at my bottom weight. I haven't been on a scale in 28 years. I thought I was fat all the time before I got here and I was my husband was so so horrified he didn't know what I was doing I was I completely did this in the closet nobody knew that I was purging my food he married a 155 pound girl with big breasts and suddenly I was this like you know flat chested like scrawny thing and he was horrified and I feel so bad for you guys for the light in your eyes I wish there was something I could <laughs> um so as soon as I started abstaining, did you say Anne or Aaron? Anne. As soon as I started abstaining Anne, I liked my body. And it was considerably bigger than it had been before. And, and I think the reason, I don't mean as soon as I did. The first year, um, all I talked about was my weight because I was gaining weight. And that's all I talked about. And after about 10 months, my sponsor said to me one day, we've been together all day. And she said, you know, this is the first time we've ever been together that you didn't mention your weight. So it started to ease up about then. But what I learned, something that I learned then that's still true for me today, is that I'm as good as my food is. 
And that means I'm as good as my willingness to make and keep a commitment. For the compulsive overeater, for me, discipline equals happiness and spontaneity equals chaos. And as soon as I eat spontaneously, I think I'm way too fat to lead the light of candle meeting. Can anybody relate to that? (laughs) But if I'm saying what I'm going to do and doing it, then I think my body's just fine. And as I say, I haven't been on a scale in 20, 27 years. I don't know. But um, did that answer your question? Any others? Yes. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Um, you mentioned that if you love that, uh, Yes. I'd love to. Um, without getting too specific, um, when I was a little girl, I had an, um, a wondrous awe of my higher power. I was scared to death in my house. But I heard that he loved me. I sang songs that said that he loved me, and I believed it. And as time went by, I didn't, you know, it was too hard to believe anymore because there was, you know, so much going on around me that didn't look like that. And so I, I substituted that. I filled that God-sized hole with food, and then later with cigarettes, and then with drugs, and then with alcohol, and then so on and so forth. In 1980, I came here, and you all, oh boy, I'm going to scare myself now. And I came here, and you said this is a spiritual program, not a religious one, and you find a higher power of your own choosing. And I did, I did, I went back to my childhood image of God, but I did it in the meetings. And so I'd go to Sunday morning meetings, and I'd say, this is my church. Well, today, my church is my church. And my 12-step meetings are where I come and, and see God. I don't, I don't always see God, I'm, again, I'm going to scare myself, but I don't always see God in all the faces in my church. But I do see him in my, in my 12-step meetings. And so I went back to my roots is basically what it is, and I, and I started to pray a little differently again. And, and, um, and so it, the 11-step has just meant so much more to me. And the 11-step prayer, especially in the, in the AA 12 and 12, and, and what that means about, you know, Understanding rather than being understood and all of that. So um, today I'm ve- I'm never very far away from God. I'm never very far away from saying help or thank you because to me those are the two most important prayers of all. And I start with I, I usually start with thank you, but help is in there at least a dozen times a day. So. Yeah.